Well, we get a little perspective this morning as Keith celebrates the anniversary of his first job in media, including, believe it or not, an Amex card and a parking space. He reached big time early. Just as commercial broadcasters are shrinking studios and offices, public radio and TV are building palaces that would shame the Egyptians. So what's the disconnect? Keith and I will talk about that. Well, good morning. I'm Jackson Weaver along with Keith Samuels for Tuesday, July 6th. This is Media Insultant. Keith, hope you had a good 4th of July. We got out my 65 Corvair convertible and we visited the Janik Winery in Woodenville with some friends. I don't remember much after getting there, but I think we had a good time. <laughs> now, this, of course, has nothing to do with media, but how about you? Did you manage to shoot off your collection of fireworks that you picked up at that roadside sales stand? Are all well, your you know, fingers intact? No, they're Ill- yes, all my fingers are intact, but fireworks are illegal in uh, Southern California, and that doesn't stop the underground fireworks business, and there were blasts all around, and obviously, don't shoot off fireworks in the hills. Well, I had Disneyland on either side of our house for the 4th, and it was pretty crazy, pretty scary, and uh, uh, but we survived, you know, so uh, off, off we go. And, you know, the, the quietest days around here are the days after the 4th of July, so... Um, <laughs> Well, hopefully, you know, we, no, but nothing caught fire. That's always the big, the big fear. Yeah, the brush fire was out in Gorman off of Interstate Five, so not anywhere near us. But uh, you know, hey, it was a busy weekend of shootings and homicides and traffic accidents here in this in Los Angeles. So, there well, you, you go. got your start in media in Los Angeles, which is really unusual. You know, most of us start out in uh, Paducah or some market that size, but you started out uh, selling at KNX FM. Tell us the story, would you? Well, sure. Well, we're telling the story because it was 45 years ago this month. Right. Um, and I don't know if it was the first or it was after the fifth. I don't remember, but it was July. I had applied for a job at, at KNX FM right after I got out of college the year before. And the uh, sales manager that I was interviewing with, Hal Bedsell, said, you know what? Great to meet you, Keith, but you need to get some experience. So I went and got experience. And that was a job in a marketing department for a major California bank called United California Bank. And after a year of that, I got wind that they were hiring a trainee position at KNX FM. So I reapplied and I got the job, which was great. And uh, that was in uh, July of 1976. And, and, and this was the heyday of KNX FM, the mellow sound in Los Angeles. The station really literally invented the soft rock format, kind of bridging what had been a a beautiful music station and uh, the rock stations in LA at the time, which was KLOS and KMET, top 40 stations like KHJ and so forth. So we were kind of right in this little niche. And uh, it was pretty special because the station was doing really well. Everybody listened to it. It was, you know, I was like uber hip at age 23. Uh, as I show up for my sales job at this place. But here's the deal. You know how much I made? I made $1,000 a month. I had a $1,000 a month salary, which was a raise from what I was making at the bank. (laughs) No commission, no override, no bonus, no training. And little did I know what that meant, but no list, no accounts. 
I was okay, given. Okay, so that okay there that you beg me on that raises the question. What did you do, Keith? Yeah, well, I had half of the yellow pages because you know it was split in two. The yellow pages were so big in those days that there was A through M and N through Z. And I forget whether I had A through M or N, N through Z, but Michael Sonberg, the other rep that had just been hired before me, and I, we each got half of the Yellow Pages. We also got half of an office. We sat back to back and made cold calls out of the Yellow Pages. And eventually I did get some accounts and, and did make a little bit more money, and it was a lot of fun. But I had no training. But I was so grateful because two of the sellers on the staff at the time, Mary Beth Garber and Sue Barnes, there were only four of us. There were four sales reps, and this was one of the top, radio stations in LA um, and a national sales manager. But Sue and Mary Beth had been buyers and they kind of took me under my wing, under their wings because I was no threat to them. I had no list or accounts. They had all the agency accounts because they were buyers and they knew all the buyers and they knew how to deal with buyers of ad time. But they, they helped me, uh, you know, Mary Beth Garber taught me how to read the book. You know, Sue was teaching me how to use the, um, the slide rule you used to use to calculate reach and frequency before the computer did it for you. Uh, how to put together proposals. They were wonderful, wonderful. I was blessed to have this kind of nurturing environment for the first four years of my sales career uh, where I could really learn a lot about the business and not have a high-risk kind of you know, starvation commission kind of, uh, kind of sales philosophy. So you know, I'm really grateful for um, the late, great Hal Bedsell and, uh, who hired me, Bob Cole, who was running the, uh, the CBS FM group for recommending me, you know, Bob Nelson, the late Bob Nelson, who was the GM, was just a marvelous gentleman. Uh, he looked like Mr. Peepers. Uh, you know, he was that kind, he was just a, he came out of promotional side of television. Uh, I remember going to my interview with Bob and I walk into his office and it was a big mahogany office. You know, it was the whole width of the building, practically lots of mahogany back at the very back was his desk. You know, there was a couch and coffee table, big, big, you know, big office. And I walk in, and as I'm approaching the chair to sit down in front of him, he reaches under the desk and pushes a button. And you know what happens next, Jackson? No, tell me. The door closes behind me. Uh. He had an automatic door closer release. So the door closes behind me. I'm going, oh, wow, this is cool. But some of the perks included, I think they were the best perks I ever had in radio. And that was one, an American Express card. So here I am, 23 years old. I think I have a... A Chevron gas card, uh, and, I, and I might have even had a Mastercard by that time, and probably, and, and then I get this CBS American Express card that we got to use for client entertainment. So how flush did I feel? I also had a personalized parking space. So my first day, I show up, I drive into the parking lot, and I find my empty spot, and it's got Mr. Samuels on it. Oh, at age 23, how cool was that? But even better, I got a CBS Eye, the logo, the most recognized logo in broadcasting, as my parking sticker. So I put that on my windshield of my MGBGT. So I've got the credit card, I've got my parking place, I've got the I've got the CBS Eye on my windshield. You know, I was I was living large. But even better than that, five spaces down from me, further away from the security entrance to Columbia Square in Hollywood was the parking the personalized parking space for one of the local news anchors at the time and she drove a, a Jensen Healy convertible which was really kind of cool. I had the MGBGT, she had the Jensen Healy. So we would meet in the parking lot as she was getting to work 
uh, and talk about our cars. But it was then that I fell in love with the great Connie Chung. Yeah, and we became yeah. we became parking lot buddies at Columbia Square in L.A. You know, God bless her for um, for thinking I was like a cute preppy kid because I was. And so it, did anyway. did you did this turn you into Herb Tarlick in any way? I mean, did you start wearing plaid <laughs> sport jackets? Come on, uh, no, no, but. Uh, uh, it was. I do have a connection to Herb Tarlick, and bless his bless his heart. Frank Bonner, the actor who played Herb Tarlick, died a couple of weeks ago. One of the great characters of WKRP in Cincinnati. But our program director at KNX FM, Steve Marshall, left in 1978, I guess maybe 79, and went to become a writer for WKRP. He ended up becoming one of the producers of the show. He was right. He was. He, they were. They were. They'd done a show in season two, episode nine, if my records are correct, where it was all about the station getting their Arbitron ratings. And Steve called me at the office and said, Keith, I need to borrow your Arbitron book. Remember, it was Arbitron before Nielsen, and before it was in your computer, it was a book. It was a paperback book, but it had all the ratings you could ever want about your market and your station. So I said, sure. So I left it in a manila envelope down at the security desk, and they borrowed my book. And if you've watched the show, and, they, and they, they're afraid to open the book, they, they, they open the envelope, there's the book. They're all looking at the book. And they pass the book around, and nobody wants to look at the book. <laughs> they're all scared. That yeah. was my book. <laughs> so I probably broke every Arbitron rule. I loaned it out to a non-subscribing station, but it was fictitious. <laughs> it was WKRP. Anyway, it was a great four years. Many thanks to, to Hal, to Pete Lauer, who was the NSM, and a great uh, buddy of mine, uh, Mary Beth Garber, Sue Barnes, Terry, the cowboy Latrell. He was the one who had all the big buying services, and he had to handle some of the most difficult buyers in, in, in America. It was just a great learning experience. I'll never forget it. I miss it terribly. And uh, thankfully, you can still go to knxfm93.com and you can listen to the stream of the station to this day with some of the um, you know great personalities from that day still on the station. It's uh, Michael Sheehy and Christopher Ames. Uh, just a, it was just an amazing experience. And uh, well, congratulations! For- yeah, for 45, 45 years ago. Yeah, and, and, and it was all downhill after that. <laughs> You peaked early. You peaked early. (laughs) You know, we've talked about this a lot in the last couple of weeks because it's really interesting. Broadcasters are all of our friends in commercial broadcasting are downsizing. You know, iHeart is, you know, going from 26,000 square feet to 9,000 square feet in markets like Cleveland. And, but while commercial stations are downsizing, the non-com stations are building the mother of all facilities. You know, I know even Rob Dunlop here in Seattle at KCTS, their 66,000-square-foot building is up for lease. So they're going to be building a new facility. And in San Francisco, KQED, which is both radio and TV, mm-hmm. last week announced that they were adding the podcast garage, which sounds kind of funky. Not quite sure where the garage came from, but and they call their new building uh, remodel. They're calling it the Building of Trust, and I don't know how many millions of dollars they're spending on that. KCRW in LA is in a new twenty-one million dollar facility. Uh, your friends at KPCC in Pasadena, they moved into a twenty-seven million dollar facility. I mean, it's just uh, to me, it's just remarkable because everybody else is downsizing. These guys are getting bigger. And where, yeah. you know, iHeart will have a major market staff of radio, on a radio station of maybe 25, maybe 30 people. 
These stations sometimes, a radio running a couple hundred people. So give me your feeling on this. I mean, how is it these guys are doing so well and the commercial side isn't? Well, I think, you know, the, I think the term non-commercial or non-com doesn't have the meaning it once did. They used to be purely non-commercial and purely subscription-based. But now that distinction is really blurred. And so um, they have found ways in the you know ways that the FCC have allowed them to you know fundraise to be able to sell what sounds like a commercial but isn't supposed to be very much like a commercial. It's not supposed to have no money down and you know free this or you know payment information on cars, but you can certainly be sponsored by you know your Southern California Ford dealers. So they have found a way to extract advertising dollars from the marketplace and still maintain a non-commercial license. They've done that really well. And if you want to if you you know if you want to show how woke you are as an advertiser, nothing's right. better than buying your local non-commercial NPR radio station. So they are every much they are as commercial as commercial stations are. In they a, just in handle a, a different slight, Yeah, in a slightly more um, erudite way. The other yeah. way they've done this is that they've done a tremendous amount of fundraising. I mean, KEXP in Seattle would not exist if it wasn't for Paul Allen donating $5 million because it was his favorite radio station back, what, 20 years ago, whatever it was. You know, at the same time, Paul Allen was bailing on the chain of AM stations that he had and the sports radio network that he used to own that I used to work for, which was Sporting News Radio. You know, it's interesting how, you know, but hey, he could easily dump $5 million into this funky FM station in Seattle. But that's what people have done. They have gotten endowments. They have donations from foundations to, to generate money to. And they have subscription revenue. So, you know, they've got so many more revenue streams than, than commercial media has that they have to spend it. So, you know, they get it and spend it, but they build these massive endowments. I mean, what's, what's uh, you, you were doing some research well, that me- KKD <clears throat> has 172 million in investments? Right, right. Yeah. So you think about that, if they get five or 6% return on that, they did 85 million in donations. Excuse me, let me rephrase that. 85 million last year in all of their revenue, about half of it was donations. Another 20% was underwriting and general stuff after that. I don't know, events and and things made up the difference. And that includes their television operation as well. So that's a comp, that's a blend, you know, where that is exactly right. But the pure play I, radio guys are, are not doing as as much, but you know they they they, uh, they also they get federal funding. So you know you've got funding, you've got donations, uh, you build up an audience just like on PBS on television. You know the pledge drives. You know it's hey you know if I donate ten bucks a month to PBS SoCal, I'm going to make sure I'm watching what I paid for or right, you know what right. I donated to. And it's the same thing on the radio side. If I if I donated this, I'm going to. Uh, donated to this station, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that they're part of my listening pattern. And the other part, too, is that they've done an extraordinary job extending their the reach of their personalities and of their content through podcasting. And that allows them to sell, guess what? Traditional advertising. Right, because right. their podcasting ventures are not non-commercial. You know, so they can commercialize the hell out of that, and they do because there's a lot of people who because they a lot of people listen to those podcasts, and they're the most listened to podcasts in America, and they're going to garner a ton of ad dollars. So guess what? Behind your non-commercial, well-intentioned uh, NPR station is a commercial operation that rivals any 
of any commercial station in America. Yeah, and and that's kind of my takeaway is kudos to these guys. Now, most of them are NPR or PBS stations. But, you know, KEXP might be an exception. They have really done a remarkable job. I mean, and you mentioned a radio versus TV revenue. I mean, in New York City, WNYC, the last figures I could find were for about five years ago. They took in $85 million. I mean, that's, yeah. that is a huge amount of revenue, even for New York City. I think well, the other that thing... Would, I mean, that would be the largest revenue-generating radio station in America. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. And particularly because, although they have WQXR, that's really one station. Right. But, you know, the other part of it is, you know, you got to hand it to them also. They build a core audience with an emotional connection, mm-hmm. which is kind of what radio used to do. And I'm not critical of radio for not doing that today because it's so much harder. I mean, it used to be we were the only dog in town. So that yields some really big dollars for these non-com guys. And it may be the most uh, one of the most viable parts of the business that on the commercial side, we don't pay a lot of attention to. No, and, and you have you, these great examples of these hosts who've lasted forever yeah. on these NPR stations, in, in certainly in LA, KPCC and KCRW, long-time hosts that build these, these loyal audiences. And when did we last do that in commercial radio? I mean, there's a few left, but you know, it's, uh, they're few and far between, or retiring, or getting pushed aside because they make too damn much money. So you know, we'll see. But what's interesting is, is at the same time, we're reading about all these fabulous new facilities that we're supposed to be really proud of at our NPR stations around the country. You know, iHeart's downsizing, you know, everywhere. And there, I think the, the most recent example we saw was them bragging about their new studios in Cleveland, uh, where they're, they're moving into these hip new, you know, street side, you know, windows on the, on the, on the boulevard up down, down in the flats part of, uh, of downtown Cleveland. You know, and they used to have, because I used to visit it several times a year, this massive facility south of downtown in Independence, Ohio, you know, in in suburbia. And, you know, they had the Cube Farm for, you know, dozens and dozens of salespeople, studios for every station, you know, conference rooms all over the place, you know, traffic departments, everything. I mean, it was massive. It was beautiful. You know, uh, they don't have the people left to fill that anymore. Yeah. Oh, no. They don't need the space. So, you know, down they go to downtown where I don't even think they have sales cubicles. In the pictures, it looks like just a few conference rooms and, and a community area like a workstation. It's like a WeWork It's a situation. WeWork. It's a WeWork dedicated to, you know, to their operation. But you're right. There are going to be no assigned desks. You're just going to show up and pick whatever is available and take a conference room. And, and that's okay. I'm not critical of that. I think that's probably a pretty smart thing for them to do. It's just a remarkable shift in presence in the market. And I think that's what it speaks to because people used to say, hey, can I come by and get a tour? And now somebody says, hey, can I come by and get a tour? And it takes you all of about three minutes. A tour of what? Exactly. (laughs) A tour of what? Well, we've 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 all seen this change, and and we talk about it every week here on Media Insultant. And uh, Keith, I think the key thing I want to do is uh, congratulate you for your your marvelous career, and uh, thank you so much for joining me here Tuesday and Thursday for Media Insultant. We have an awful lot of fun with it. We we sometimes even come up with a good idea or two. I'm I'm not sure that's true, but what's really impressive is you launched your career in the largest second the largest market radio market really in the country. And that's pretty impressive. Pretty lucky so, guy. Yep, you you certainly are. So for uh, our post on July 4th, the Tuesday edition, I'm afraid that's got to be a wrap. Everybody have a happy 4th, whatever is left of it. There's always a residual day or two. And Keith, I'll see you on Thursday. Thanks, Jackson. Enjoyed it. Appreciate it, buddy.